0: This is the Seek Outside Podcast. Recorded April 1st. Today's guest is Ryan Lampers, talking about all things Ryan Lampers. Gardening, homesteading, hunting, you name it. Hey, this is Kevin with Seek Outside on our podcast today. Our guest is Ryan Lampers. I'm sure plenty of people know Ryan from the podcast that him and his wife, Hillary, have, as well as other podcasts that he's frequently on with Brian Call, Gritty, Eastman's, etc. Um, we also have Dennis, who is a brand manager for Seek Outside, and Nathan, who is digital content manager for Seek Outside. So it's going to be a little bit of a group podcast anyway how you doing Ryan
1: oh doing great guys how are you I'm
0: doing Good. well yeah yeah um so so to kind of put a little timeline this is recorded first day of April right uh, 2020 a lot of the nation is on uh, lockdown or some sort of restriction on travel and movement um, due to covid 19 coronavirus stuff i know you and your wife have uh done a couple podcasts on it um anything <laughs> you have to say on that front there um ryan oh man
1: yeah lots going on out there in the world right now isn't it it's just uh kind of unprecedented crazy times we're we're in and, and and you know who knows if we'll ever have something like this happen again uh you know with the pandemic but and lock kind of locked down everywhere across the country Um, You know, my wife and I, we're pretty happy with where we're at. I know uh, I talked to, yeah, originally I'm from Washington state and, and my wife and I moved out here to Montana a couple of years ago. And um, boy, I talked to my buddies back in Washington and they got a whole different set of circumstances going on back there with their shelter in order. They, they can't get out and do a whole lot, but fortunately here where we are, uh, we're out in the country it's pretty quiet out here. There isn't really nobody around uh, out in Three Forks. and So we've got, you know, we've got the ability to go recreate at least. So we're able to get out and get exercise every day and uh, just kind of go wander. And A lot of places don't have that option. But, um, yeah, what Hill and I have been doing through all this is uh, kind of just what most people are and just buckling down trying to get some projects done, get some podcasts done, get some work done around the house uh, you know, we're, we're back to homeschooling the kiddos like we used to years ago. And so we're trying to keep them active. And, um, you know, of course my, my favorite activity of the day is, is PE and that's going out and playing, playing basketball with the girls and just going out for, for some hikes. That's where the backpack on and, and, uh, we just kind of run all over, but yeah, kind of our thoughts on this is, uh, no better time than to really focus on health uh building your immunity getting your physical conditioning up to snuff and uh hopefully this passes soon and we can get back to normalcy we we've, we've already um selfishly i i'm kind of bummed because we already had to cancel one hunting trip um because of this and that was a big extended trip down to New Zealand Uh, we were going to be down there for a few weeks and uh, obviously that that wasn't happening and so now all eyes ahead on spring bear Um, you know we open up April 1 today uh, it's a little early here in Montana we we got a blanket of snow out there but um, for a lot of my my friends back in Washington state they have closed their bear season uh, no spring bear for those guys at this time, and for any any time in the foreseeable future, um, you know, youth turkey hunting, they they kind of shut everything down. They shut down the woods. Uh, has not happened here in Montana as of yet. So uh, Brian, Colin, myself, Jeff, Left, and James Sylvester, we've uh, we've been planning some hunts here uh, for this month here in a couple weeks where we're heading in for a big bear trip a couple of big bear trips and we're looking forward to that so yeah kind of what we're doing at the house here is just preparing for that getting the food all built and ready snacks all ready, and then obviously tackling tackling all these little projects around the house that we all seem to avoid the rest of the year so
0: yeah i know how that is um we are finishing up the home construction on our house now it seems like you're in a whole lot better spot in Montana than you would be in Washington right now. And oh my is goodness! There, yeah. Um, and is there? Do you have a feeling if Idaho was going to shut down their seasons, or you think you're pretty strong that it's that it's all going to be a go for spring bear in Idaho?
1: I'm not positive. I I sure hope they don't. Um, I haven't heard anything to that effect yet that they're that they're closing the woods. I know guys are still out hiking and stuff like that, and. Uh, put some calls in out there and, and we're still a go, but, you know, if things change, then, then we will kind of kick Idaho off the list and we'll really focus on Montana here. And, and um, you know, if nothing else, you know, we'll, we'll see a lot of country, learn a lot of country. Uh, I know around here though, at this elevation, the bears are, they're still a ways off usually May Um, you know, second week, third week in May is when it really starts to pop here in Montana, but Idaho, you can kind of get into some lower elevation type stuff. And, um, you know, prior to this little blanket of snow we had, I know there were some bears already popping out, uh, two weeks ago down at, uh, you know, 25, 3000 feet elevation. So, uh, getting some pictures of those coming in and, um, So, yeah, everything looks good Um, as far as Idaho goes at this point. Now, that could change any day, but all plans are a go.
0: Now, your family seems like this was a pretty easy transition for you. You've already, you pretty much do a lot of homesteading kind of stuff, Uh, a lot of gardening, a lot of canning. Um, As you alluded, you used to homeschool your girls uh, before. So, this seems like you probably are among the people that had an easier transition with this whole stay at home and run on the supermarkets and everything.
1: Yeah, for sure. No, um, obviously this is an inconvenience for anybody and everybody, but, uh, you know, food, food for, for hunters in general, not just, uh, like homesteaders, but hunters, you know, obviously we typically have, you know, freezer freezers full of, of meat um yeah for hill and i we love to process food not just meat but we grow a as big of a garden as we can and we've always done that obviously here in montana there's i'm still in those learning stages of this new uh, zone here the climate's way different uh short short much shorter growing season than i had uh, back on the coast of washington so um, you know we're really focusing on that. In fact, right now, it's a great time to uh, get all your starts going. We're most likely I won't be putting anything in the ground for another eight nine weeks. Um, that's just the zone I live in, uh, kind of for fear of that last uh, last frost of the season. But uh, getting starts in. I've, fortunately, we have a, a really fifteen hundred square foot basement that we're able to put a bunch of UV lighting and shelving and and get all our starts going. So that's a major focus right now and um, getting the herbs in and getting all those starts that we're not going to just put right into the ground. Uh, Some of those cool weather crops that we're getting in right now. So yeah, no uh, homesteading um, slash just food prep, uh, all that type of stuff. We've got, uh, The nice thing about when you grow a garden and when you hunt is uh, food is, is never, you know, you're never really short on food. Um, If you're a canner and you've, you've canned a bunch of, you know, sauces and soups and pickled beans and beets and onions and all that kind of stuff, you know, you just go to the pantry. And um, fortunately we have a big old pantry full of Mason jars, full of, full of food and, um, And it it is nice. It's an easy transition when you're not able to go to the store. Uh, Obviously, there's even for a homesteader, uh, there's things you can't just do yourself. And it's nice to have when you go to the store Um, you know, bananas, avocados, stuff like that. But as far as just, um, you know, dehydrated berries and um, just foods put up uh, in the cupboard or the pantry and then in the freezer. Man, yeah, there's there's no worries for as far as food goes when something like this hits. So um, I think I've, I've said this before, but if anything good comes out of this type of situation with the pandemic or, you know, whatever is, is in our future, um, you know, just, just being aware of, you know, your food and being able to create your own and grow your own and hunt your own and harvest it and can it and preserve it. Uh, it sure does come in handy, and, uh, and you know, when things like this crop up, there's no real worry as far as where your your meal is going to come from. It's just kind of all all in house, and and you're able to, um, you know, I mean, shoot, you could as long as the power doesn't go out, we're still able to grow indoors um, with lighting and and grow salad and vegetables and, and things like that. So no so you in- transition.
2: So, is like, is, as far as your starts and stuff, like you're talking about, you're in your basement with your lights. Is that something you leave set up all the time, or you like roll it out in the springtime to get everything going and then put it away
1: um, as you're growing yeah. stuff outside? So, um, right now, with the transition, we've got this is the time of year to put our starts in. Um, as far as uh, getting them transplanted into the garden, you know, we're about the right timing there. It's not something I do year-round. Now that will change once I am able to get my um, my giant greenhouse built here. I I had to leave my greenhouse uh, when I moved from Washington, and um, I've got plans, and I'm still making plans for a uh, underground slash kind of uh, kind of above ground underground type greenhouse where I'm able to use. You know, there's just 300 days of sunshine in this place, and I've got kind of a sloped till where I get full southern exposure, and uh, I want to use the, the ground for not just insulation in the winter, but also in the summertime. It's, it's kind of uh, what I've wanted to do for a long time. Now, once I get that built and I get, um, get my wood stove in there, I'll, able, I'll be able to grow year round again. But uh, it's just not the case yet. Uh, Not only do we have a short growing season, we also have a short construction season with the mud that we have here in Montana, uh, (laughs) or just the freeze. Uh, When that mud is wet, you aren't doing a whole lot out there. It's, It's clay and it's nasty stuff. So now we got a bunch of big projects coming so that we can have these vegetables and everything growing year round.
2: Growing year-round, um, yeah, and, and so that's something that you used to do in Washington, you used to just grow year-round.
1: Yeah, you can do it very easily back there if you have yeah. a greenhouse house um, with a heat source. It's, it's super easy and obviously a little bit of lighting at certain times. Um, um, but, uh, yeah, throughout the winter, the nice thing about Montana is, is full sun, you know, even throughout the winter. It's not dark and cloudy, and, and you don't have to introduce those lights. As much, but uh, you do need to have a heat source to um, keep your soil um, heated anyway.
0: When we first moved into this house, we pretty much did much more of a homestead uh, lifestyle here. We had a very large garden. It sounds very similar to some of the challenges. Our growing season was, I mean, we could get frosts in June and in late August. So it was pretty short. And it was kind of funny because... We started out just growing a lot of stuff, chickens, um, canning a lot of vegetables and all that, and we had bindweed really bad in our garden, which was just awful to deal with. And mm. over the over the course of it was, I joked that it was so bad that you could like, uh, you know, pull the weeds from one row and turn around and they were already growing back at the start of the row. <laughs> um, but <laughs> someone. Angie was talking to someone, they're like, well, the way to handle bindweed is to let your chickens into the garden, right? So on paper, that sounded like a great idea, but it turned out the chickens really liked the spinach, <laughs> the chard, the broccoli, yeah. and they weren't so much into the whole bindweed. So eventually, yeah, we ended up. Yeah, so yeah all the beans
1: there, they're, they're going to chew those up and scratch up your onions and carrots and beets and all that stuff
0: yep exactly so we turned from there to trying to use a greenhouse to augment stuff right and the greenhouse Mm -hmm. was going pretty well angie was doing pretty well with augmenting with the greenhouse then we got pack goats at one point and Mm -hmm. the pack goats were kind of like a labrador retriever in a mule deer body right um 200 pounds um but they wanted to be with you like a dog well, then it turned out that the pack goats learned how to break into the greenhouse, so oh. everything would be looking great. And so finally, a few years ago, we just kind of x the garden, the goats, then the chickens. But when all this COVID stuff hit, it was relatively easy for us. I mean, Angie was like, okay, I'm buying some chickens. And so we have yeah. chickens in our garage now, and we started growing some stuff inside you know using lights and stuff like that uh i don't know i think it's called mr stacky farm or something like that so we got that mm-hmm. going and that looks promising this as a starter um so that's kind of how we're like well let's get back more like to shell- the
1: is that like a shelving it- system with lighting built in or
0: the lighting isn't built in but it's kind of like a it's like a system where things set uh on top of each other differently and so waters continually running from the top to the bottom and then you have a light on top and okay. the and it's pretty neat i'll i'll, I'll send some photos like of a, it to you
1: almost so, like a mini mini hydroponic system Then it sounds like
0: yeah yeah it is so <laughs> cool and, and as and as part of you know we've been kind of remodeling our house for about a year um and mm-hmm. And as part of that, we, one of our things was that we wanted an area that got really good sunlight so we could start growing stuff inside in front of that as well. So once this is all done, um, yeah, so.
1: No, that's great. As far as, uh, like you can't go wrong with chickens, right? I mean, chickens are just one of the easiest things and man, I think every, every breakfast that we have revolves around chicken eggs somehow, some way. Um, so, yeah, having, having a pile of chicken. In fact, we, we just got a whole nother batch that we're uh, raising down in that basement as well to uh, introduce to our other, the other flock that's out there. And, yeah, I, it's funny you say, you know, chickens are great as far as taking away pests and things of that nature out of your garden but they do wreak havoc on your on your plant. So um, one of the things that, that I do is, uh, is like I'll, in, uh, I'll allow the chickens. In fact, I move the coop into my garden space in the wintertime, you know, when the crop's done and all that. And, and they'll just kind of, uh, you know, run around the garden and they eat everything down and, and the bugs and they scratch and do all that. And they just it's a pretty good fertilizer. And they're not There's not enough chickens to really put too much, you know, manure where it's going to actually be a detriment. Um, You know, chicken manure is is hot, so uh, it needs to break down. It needs to compost before it's useful to you. Um, But, yeah, uh, that's just one of the things that that I've used them for is, is just allowing them to go into the greenhouse or into the garden, the winter months, and to have free rain, and then they have to come out in the summer when there's actually crops in the ground. But um, one of the one of the challenges is that we've had. Now I think every environment has challenges. I know, slugs, you know, um, you know, cutworms, stuff like that. Those are a big challenge back in the, back in the Pacific Northwest. Out here, it's more grasshoppers. Um, man, they just. Last year, uh, I was shocked at how many hoppers we had. It was just some type of a boom, (laughs) and uh, I had a rough go trying to keep those hoppers out, so uh, they do some pretty big damage to all your kale and all your greens and all that, so Mm -hmm. um, this year, I've gone to basically putting a moat around my fenced-in garden so the chickens, I mean, the chickens love hoppers, right? So they can just kind of motor around in that moat, that little fenced off area and pick hoppers up as they're trying to get into the garden. Um, and, uh, and so that's kind of one of the things that I'm using the chickens for is to try to knock down that hopper population a bit as well.
0: So so how many chickens we don't do have you have? Bugs.
1: Oh, we've only got, I think we've, we've got 10. Um, yeah, 10 or 11.
0: And you have a mobile, and you have a mobile, coupe basically. Then,
1: yep, yep, got uh, got it built to where one side is on wheels, easy to move around. Um, and in fact, uh, on my list of things to do here while this is going on is, is I'm going to build another movable tractor-style coupe that uh, that I can. Uh, put up on the other side of the garden side there and um, for this whole new crop that we're going to be introducing. So, um, yeah, yeah, little, little, uh, you know, like movable coops are are pretty nice to have. And, uh, you know, each, each coop, you can get six to 10 chickens in um, at that size and still be able to move that thing around if you've got it on wheels.
0: We, we used to have what we had were chicken tractors because we had, we rose, we raised meat birds a couple of years and dang, those things were disgusting. How secure are your chickens in your mobile, mobile coop? Cause one of the big problems we've always had has been predators. So.
1: Yeah. You just kind of have to be diligent about putting them to bed every night. Um, you know, we've got a lot of Fox out here, a lot of coyotes. And now, you know, I think our dogs just kind of rule the yard here. I've got three setters and, and, uh, they, they, for the most part, keep the animals away. Um, the coyotes don't even get too close here, and uh, and and you know within within my garden area, the fenced in area, I have a basically a dog kennel, uh, and that's surrounding the coop. But I just leave the door open too, and then I shut that kennel door. That just doesn't allow the fox to to sneak into my garden area and, and get into those chickens. I just gotta shut the kennel door, so it's just kind of an extra layer. Um, but I haven't had any any birds of prey swoop in and and uh
3: any of my chickens yet and i think that's just because i have the dogs out all day long so you know i'm I'm in tennessee um, so it's a different set of climate circumstances but we also have chickens we've got a couple dozen and and, uh, we used to let them free range um, until one year we lost 20 in about a two-week period to a family of foxes um, yeah so um, I, in, in my experience if you want six chickens you need to start with about two dozen and um, between <laughs> the dogs and the and the possums and the raccoons and the foxes and and everything you'll wind up with six <laughs> so that, yeah. that, that was
0: a that was ours as well
3: (laughs) that's so true because you know
1: like uh i would love to allow my birds to free range uh we used to do them back in other places but um the problem is there's just so many hawks uh owls uh, you know they would they would swoop in and definitely knock down my uh my chickens uh, pretty substantially and i know a fox would get in here as well if i just had them out free ranging and.
3: Fortunately, no, had the, to... we, we, we had foxes taking chickens that were t- literally 10 feet from the front door in broad daylight, wow. like 12 noon. Wow. We, yeah, we, it was amazing right. how bold they
0: got. We had so much chicken attrition that um, at first I'm a, like Angie was so like concerned about her chickens and she left one weekend. I was supposed to watch them and I, some storm happened and the door blew open in the coop and We lost a bunch and she was so mad at me. But then over the course of four or five years, it was like we would have events where like one time one F Jeff was uh, watching our house. I think we were at the shot show in Vegas. A blizzard came in and he didn't get the, the coop shut. And I think we lost like 17 or 18 And that spring under the blizzard. Dogs every day were like coming around with another dead chicken in their mouth. Like, look at what I found. And it was just, um, we had one chicken though, that was really a weird kind of, it slept in a box. It would go through the dog door into our garage and sleep (laughs) and sleep in a box with the cats. And that chicken probably Mm. lived like six or seven years.
1: That's a, the smartest yeah. one of the flocks, but he yeah. you know, you yeah, figured it yeah. out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, My my biggest uh, predator was always raccoons back uh, in the northwest. There, I don't have them here. We're out in the prairie, so we don't have we don't have uh, much for timber or anything like that. We just don't have many raccoons like they do in town. So I don't have to worry about them. But those were my biggest uh, biggest predator as far as stealing chickens. And uh, I'm pretty happy I don't have to deal with them anymore, but.
3: So, yeah, Ryan, uh, I, do, I do have a question for you. Um, I'm getting to the point where I've got some older birds. I'm bringing in a dozen chicks this spring. And then in the fall, I would like to cycle through some of the older birds and put them in the freezer. Uh, yep. Do you guys do that? Do you have any tips on plucking and processing and, and all that, how to make that an easier process? Yeah,
1: it's it's really what you have to do, right? I mean, once they aren't holding their weight as far as what you're putting into them, the cost of feeding them, you know, after about year four, your your return on investment isn't very good. So it is best to, um, you know, trim the herd and and uh, get those put in the freezer, or just take one out on occasion and and uh, cook it up as is. And um, yeah, we have to do that. it's it's. It sucks because uh, you know I've got little girls, so they don't like seeing their their pet chickens, um, you know, get beheaded and, and plucked. But it's just kind of the process, and and they used to uh, not like it as much, but they kind of they get it now. So yeah, I I don't I don't know. We're we we just keep it real simple, and uh, we'll just pluck one on occasion that isn't producing. And um, you know, once they hit that four year old stage, you're really not getting what you're putting into um you know an, an investment in seed but that first year second even into the third year you know you should be rocking and rolling with egg production beyond that it's it, that just introduce new chickens for sure
3: Do you just do scalding water at about 150 degrees and and pluck by hand or do you have a mechanical plucker or what I, it's just by hand, um, just old okay. school. I wish I had a mechanical
1: plucker at times. Yeah, I, I, I've seen. Do I've it. seen
3: some stuff, and you know, people are running them off drills. Like they'll take a piece of PVC and put some rubber bungee straps on it and stuff, and then uh, use that to basically strip the feathers off. I was, I was really thinking about doing something like that because I've probably got goodness close to a dozen birds that I'd probably need to stick in the freezer this fall. No, we yeah. Had,
0: yeah. We had 70 ish meat birds that we did on one weekend. Um, and what we did on that was we had one of my buddies, Bill. Um, I call him the uh, brother by another mother. Um, he had this whole process of playing the Grim Reaper, um, which, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, he'd pet him, calm him down. Pull, and then we had a scalding bucket and people plucking mm. um but i mean it was it was such a mess um it invited, it invited
1: it yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah they're nasty they are nasty. we did it
1: years ago and i'll never do it again and not quite honestly guys i'm not i'm not a big chicken fan like uh, just eating chicken meat none of my family is really we'll eat it but it's not i don't know it's just not when you got red meat in the freezer um, you know, we'll eat one on occasion just to pluck it from the herd, but we don't eat much chicken here. And, uh, I think there's better, better meals, especially when you got antelope, bear, venison <laughs> and all that. Um, but yeah, we, it, we did the whole meat bird thing one year and gosh, it's just a, it's a pretty gross endeavor. Um, raising those things. I can't hardly walk. It's pretty nasty, but
0: yeah, yeah. They're, they're pretty disgusting. So. I know that we've probably been chatting now for about a half hour. People are probably like, how do you have Ryan Lampers on for so long? And don't ask him any hunting stuff. Right. So what do you, since you hunt bear a lot, what do you do with all the hides on the bears?
1: Yeah. So, um, gosh, you know, I'll take a hide on occasion. Um, I'm not quite honestly, Kevin, I love bear meat uh i love the adventure of the hunt i love the meat aspect of of coming off the mountain with with bear meat i'm not really big into the hides now um i i used to take them early on uh you know you get a couple bear rugs made and it's cool you get to throw those over the couch and uh you know this last year uh, i took a couple hides out and uh got them all tanned up and everything and I don't know. I'm just, uh, usually where we take these darn bears, I'm not that into packing the hides out. Um, maybe that's a bad thing. Uh, I I'm more interested in the adventure of that trip as well as the meat, uh, that I acquired from those bears. Um, so I'm not a real big, like hide lover. (laughs) I don't have hides hanging all over the place. Uh,
0: Okay, so you you just leave them, some of them in the field. Uh, Um, I do.
1: I, yeah quite a few of them well but, uh... I'm kind
0: of I'm kind of the same way I mean with bear in regards to bear hunting and I I've had a couple bears that were pretty good eating, but we have a lot of garbage bears and stuff around here as well and mm-hmm. you know so I really I really want like high mountain bear, right mm-hmm. um, but I've always kind of been like, I just don't you know there are a lot of extra work dealing with the hide packing out the hide. sometimes the hide That's... seems to weigh just as much as the meat. Um, Oh,
1: it's so amazing. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And I think it has a lot to do with like uh, what you hope to get out of a big trip. So an adventure and, and also how far you've gone in. Sometimes it's everything you can do to go in, get your bear load up your backpack full of all the meat Um, that could be anywhere from 60 to a hundred and 120 pounds. It's everything you can do to get that back to your truck. Um, and not take the hide. And, and I would rather make sure I get that meat out in a timely fashion than even deal with the hide sometimes. And, um, you know, obviously I'd be more apt to take one probably and mess with it if I wasn't so far in or it was, you know, just kind of a weekend trip and you weren't, you know, you spotted something from not that far or whatever. But honestly, uh, kind of the trips that we set out to make and uh, and create are pretty deep diving adventure wilderness type trips and um sometimes the hide sometimes the hide just doesn't make sense to take out with you and i just don't get a whole lot out of um out of the hide at all and uh, much more much more intent on getting that meat out getting it back and spending the next couple days processing it and canning it and you know getting that put away in the freezer than and having to deal with the hide, you know, once you have a half a dozen hides or so, like what, what's the point? Um, um would
2: like speaking of speaking of canning that bear meat, like how much how much of the bear are you canning? I saw some pictures you put up the other day. Um, is is that your preferred way to do that?
1: Yeah, I like canning all meat. Um, usually, I'll do I'll do quite a bit of uh, the bear. I'll do at least a quarter to maybe up to a half sometimes. I'll take out those choice pieces uh, the roast, you know the straps and anything steakable. um i'll set those off to the side and then i will i will uh you know get a get a bag full quite a few bags full of um you know ground type stuff that i can make bear burgers out of but then a lot of that goes to i just cube up and can it and um gosh i don't know that there's anything better than canned bear meat it's you know I love venison I love elk and deer as well it's a little um, it's a little less fatty and there's something about that bear meat when you can it that it's just a really high quality good flavor to it now again like you said Kevin uh, high mountain bear are definitely preferred I've I have yet to ever take a bear that was that didn't taste good and the only reason for that is I've just not spent much time down where bears are eating skunk cabbage or they're eating they're they're digging in the dumpsters or anything like that, and uh, I've been very fortunate to be able to hunt the high country where they're just eating grasses and even onions. You know, you'd think that might have an off flavor, but uh, not the case that I've found at all. And uh, and so yeah, I think uh, I think canned bear meat. Uh, no specific, you know, recipe required. It's like a pinch of salt in the bear meat itself, and you can it, and it's just so good. Um, and, you know, some people feel a little better about canned than even just cooking because of the fact that, you know, a lot of bears do have trichinosis, and when you can it, you're, you're cooking that out, and you're safe. Uh, you're getting it above that 165-degree mark, and, um, you know, you know that everything in that can is, it's good to go uh versus you know when you cook it you know on a, a trigger or you're, you're smoke it or you, know, you got to get the temp right make sure mm-hmm. that you've fully cooked it to the point that uh, there's no threat of trichinosis
2: got it so that so the the canning is the easier way to make sure that you're heating everything up over that 165 mark it's
1: yeah like and it just man, once you can it it just seals everything seals all that flavor in too you know all yeah. that and that's fat. And, you know, if you're ever taken a bear, you'll notice that the uh, the meat is almost a purple, dark color. And it's very, it sound, may sound gross to some, but it's very greasy. Uh, but I found that that's just, that's just the way, that just adds to the flavor. You know, it is very fatty and greasy. And, and it just, for making burgers or, you know, when you can it up and you lock all those juices in there, man, it's just one of my favorite. Jars to pop open is a is a jar full of canned bear meat. Um, now, there's also a difference in spring bear to fall bear. One of the advantages that uh, we have, you know, Idaho and Montana is we got very uh, liberal seasons when it comes to spring bear hunting. Back in Washington, that wasn't the case. You had to draw. It was pretty tough for us to get a spring bear tag in that state. Um, you get one every four or five years or so, but you are more likely to hunt fall bears, which generally opened, uh, depending on where you were, August 1st to August 15th. And so you're focusing your efforts in areas where they're eating berries, uh, huckleberries, blueberries, high mountain stuff. And you're finding that berry line where they're ripe, and that's where the bears are. So you you would take these bears in the fall and uh, literally five inches or more sometimes of just back fat on these bears Mm -hmm. and they're just some of the tastiest bears you will ever eat is a berry fed fall fat bear and uh and it is hard to beat the meat off of those things that are just living in a berry field i mean they get they get lazy you get a good year of berries and those bears literally lay down on their bellies and they're just like scarfing they're just pulling those berries in with their paws and and just scarfing down berries and they get fat and happy up there. And it's one of the, it's one of the best meats I think you'll ever find is, uh, you know, you pluck a bear out of a berry field.
0: And the other advantage
1: to that is, and I don't know if you guys have ever tried, you know, rendering bear fat or anything like that, but I I know we, we do it a lot and we use the heck out of that bear fat uh, after you've rendered it. And, uh, you know you don't get very much on a spring bear obviously they've been they've been dend up and they don't have a whole lot of fat on them sometimes you'll find one that surprisingly has them but uh those fall bears man you you could get anywhere from a dozen to uh you know 15 mason jars full of rendered down bear fat off of uh, off <laughs> of a bear wow. and, uh, and it's a little extra work but it's kind of fun to do and play with and and utilize that bare fat like like How do you, like you do oh man so there's a lot of ways you can use bare fat I think I think if you're a baker you'll see the value in it um bare fat and duck eggs those two are two, two things that just kind of go together uh, when you're baking dishes um I mean gosh we even put it in our like we'll make these uh these sourdough very egg rich waffles in the morning and then we'll add a couple of tablespoons of bear fat to to every batch and it just makes you are using um, it
3: like a lard replacement. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Uh, what is yep. your canning setup? Like when you're canning bear meat are you using a mm-hmm. turkey fryer in a pot or an instant pot or pressure cooker or, or what? So I'm using a I'm using a
1: pressure cooker. I'm going to play it safe, uh, you know, I suppose you could do a water bath, but it's never as safe as using a pressure cooker. I would highly recommend getting a good pressure cooker. Uh, I've had one for years. It's called um, the All American, and it's—I don't know how many quarts I can get in it, but it's—it's it's a big one and it's very well made, and um, and it's—it's it's just the easiest way to go, and it's—it's it's very safe. So um, yeah, my system is. It's basically like canning anything else, and you know, with most meats, it's it's a ninety-minute process, um, you know, in the actual pressure cooker itself before you uh, before you turn it off. So,
0: now, did you learn all this uh, the canning part on your own, or I, I mean, listening to your podcast that was you talking to the Wild, Montana Wild Sheep? You talked about your mentors and the things that they taught you as a hunter coming along did someone teach you all the canning stuff or did you just go to the bookstore and buy a book and be mm-hmm. like i'm gonna teach myself all this
1: <laughs> yeah uh great question kevin uh i actually learned it all myself i uh, i had some ants that were very into canning um i think it used to be more fashionable back in the day and uh, growing up my aunt do it a lot yeah and uh but my, my folks didn't do it a whole lot yet my my father was a, a uh, basically a master gardener he he's very very good he he was very he got me into the gardening he uh, i mean he was into grafting fruit trees you know nut trees to grow in these giant enormous gardens and uh, I'll be honest for most of my life uh, as a kid up into my teens I I couldn't figure out why he would waste his time out there plucking weeds, throwing rocks out of his garden when he could be doing something fun, like steelhead fishing on a river or going out hiking. But he, uh, you know, he, he did it and he did it and he did it. And uh, I would make fun of him for it. And I'd go fishing and eventually I saw value in it. And, uh, and he, he finally got it through my sixth goal that there's, there's value. And it's kind of nice to go down to the garden and just hang out and, and eat stuff right out of the ground. And, um, and then the bummer of it is, though, that, you know, come the end, you know, your harvest season, uh, which is typically when we start to go into the hills, you've got all this excess food in your garden from greens to carrots to onions to beets. And if you don't have a way to preserve it, you're either just letting it, you know, recompost into the ground because you don't have time to uh, eat it all. Or mm-hmm. you find a way, and, and canning just makes the most sense. You know you, if you like pickled stuff, it's it's very easy to can um, you know all kinds of vegetables and, uh, and pickle them up and and put them away and have access to them in the winter. And so if you love that stuff in the summer and you want to be able to continue to eat it year round, it only makes sense to get into canning. So I just kind of learned it on my own, um, you know from dehydrating certain type things to, canning them and, and just wanting them you know, put away. And I don't know. that That's always been a big love of mine. It's just food. Um, that, I think that's, that's why I love hunting so much and gardening and all that.
0: So I grew up with my grandma, right? And um, she did she had a giant garden. Um, she did canning almost all venison, you know. So most of our food yeah. was from the garden or was venison. She We had grapes. She made her own wine. We had a big strawberry patch all this. But as a kid, I was supposed to go out and weed like three rows every day during the summer when I was like seven or eight. And I hated right. that garden at such a level. One day I was like seven or eight. One day I ran away from home. I was like, I cannot take this garden anymore. I just want to go fishing because I used to go fish for all these little brook trout and all these silly little streams in central Wisconsin. So I ran away to my neighbors and um, went over there and his wife made breakfast carol they live in Salmon, idaho now and i just did not like the way she made her eggs so i went home couldn't deal with
1: it <laughs> that it all took huh wow
0: yeah <laughs> so i was i was oh, i was real strong with my conviction right so i was back to sure. doing that garden. i was back to doing that garden for breakfast before uh before i could go fish or anything so
1: yeah man hey <laughs> It, that's funny. Yeah, I, I think uh, I wonder if that's just normal. You know, uh, it takes a while to see value in in the garden aspect, like growing food. Um, you know, it took me. Who knows? Maybe I never would have would have figured it out if my dad hadn't have been so adamant about gardening, spending so much time every summer doing it. But um, boy, there is something very fulfilling. Uh, when you grow your own food, just like when you're out hunting your own food, um, I, I kind of relate it to you know, that feeling you get after you, uh, buzz up all your firewood and you get everything stacked and you're good for the winter. Like that feeling, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you grow your own food. It's very similar. It's, you feel like you did something, um, of importance for the family and you get to enjoy it. And, uh, man, I, I love those summer days just going down there with the girls and, and, um, do a little bit of weeding daily and, and just plucking stuff fresh out of the garden. And uh, let's face it, it, it always tastes better when you've grown it yourself versus what you oh, find in groceries. It does. In grocery.
0: And, it does. Um, in fact, yeah, with kids, I think it'd be a whole lot easier if pizza grew in the ground or donuts or something or cookies, right? <laughs> They'd be like, oh, gardening yeah. is awesome. but no
1: yeah and it's interesting like we have the hardest time i think pretty typically it's hard to get kids to eat vegetables you know greens or salads or things like that Mm -hmm. Uh, but i'll tell you what if you want your kids to eat more of that type stuff and you grow it and you take them out there and you get them involved a little bit um my girls just like everybody's kids they don't want to eat it uh in there at dinner you know a, a bowl full of veggies but when they're in the garden, um, they're plucking, uh, you know, strawberries, and they're they're plucking carrots, and they're eating greens. And my daughter just eats kale right off out off the plant. They're in the garden box and the uh, tomatoes and all that stuff. She eats it with regularity and she loves it. And yet it's very difficult to get her to eat it inside, like at at the dinner table. Uh, I don't know why. She just she just loves it and. Same with my little, she she does the same thing. They'll they'll eat all the all the flowers and everything that's popping in the garden um, in the summertime. So it's a good way to get kids to eat veggies is to grow a garden, and, and uh, obviously the taste I think has a lot to do with it. Um, and that's another whole another topic, but you know, kind of seasonal eating. We don't honestly eat a lot of fresh vegetables in the winter time, you know, unless it's canned or something that out of the garden i just don't find that the store-bought stuff is very um tasty flavorful uh nutritious Uh, i don't know i just i just don't and uh i think i think eating seasonally isn't a bad thing
0: well i mean if you go back to looking at like say some of the stuff hillary's talked about on the podcast or you did a hunting trip with a metabolic mike um Mm -hmm and stuff like that if you or if you listen to say mark sisson and people that advocate maybe closer to keto or you know closer to a very nutritious very wholesome kind of diet you know just it was really hard i mean you just in most places in the country don't have berries going in in the winter you know you're you wouldn't have right. been a hundred years ago it would have been that you very likely or 200 years ago that you very likely um, trended towards meat and fat for most of your yep. winter sustenance so
1: absolutely no it's completely true and, and my wife's very uh you know she she talks about that pretty frequently and it's it's just it's totally right i mean a lot of soups and stews and meats and you know meat potato type stuff and and, and fats and all that in the in the winter Things that you've put up or canned, and and then come summer rolls around, and you're able to get all those those fresh garden greens and berries and in the fall, and uh, definitely something to that because that's that's where we came from, and that's how we used to uh, uh, used to um, have, you know, that's what we used, how we used to live basically. So, no, it makes sense for for sure. And quite honestly, I'd prefer not to have to, you know, buy those things when the flavor profile is. I don't know. I, you ever get like a very tasty tomato from a store in the winter, or does it just taste like watered, very, very bland, plain? Uh, I don't know. Just don't get a whole lot out of it, but uh, those summer tomatoes off the vine, or that's where it's at for sure.
0: Yep. Totally agree on that. I mean, as a, I used to, you know, I've been like, say strawberries, store-bought strawberries to me, they don't even taste like a strawberry um, by no. comparison. So you hit on something earlier you talked about as a kid, you'd much rather go steelhead fishing than garden. Now, according to a couple conversations, you used to be quite the, quite the fisherman. And I heard talk about that on a podcast. I think you talked about guiding in Russia and, and and all sorts of stuff like that. So it Mm -hmm. seems like fishing was really kind of your first love.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, When I grew up again, everything kind of revolved around my father. He was, uh, he was, you know, raised on Whidbey Island and, you know, kind of a salmon Mecca and uh he's just a a stellar fisherman in every every way from steelhead to all types of salmon um, trout everything he's just really good halibut and uh, so yeah i i was raised around that uh spent most of my youth uh we live by lake so i would spend most of my days just down on the on the lake figuring out you know how to catch Catch crappie and catch trout and uh, all the different things and all the different creeks and uh, no I I fell in love with fishing and I uh, I got out of uh, school and I was fortunate to you know I've fished with a lot of a lot of folks in that Pacific Northwest by that point uh, in my early twenties and and so I guess I had a name for being pretty okay at steelheading and and all that. And uh, that landed me a job in Alaska, they offered, and I went up and, and started doing that, and I'd spend, you know, my five months out of the summers fishing in Alaska and guiding people, and uh, that led me to travel over to Russia for a couple of years and, and uh, got a part, be a part of that steelhead project and on Kamchatka. And, and we fished, you know, the East Coast, West Coast, fishing for Giant Rainbows and Kunja and... It was one of the best experiences of my life, uh, getting to travel around and basically, you know, get to ride in choppers and pick out water that we wanted to fish that nobody had access to. Uh, you know, prior to the fall of the Soviet Union there, it, was, um, it wasn't even accessible. And after everything uh, kind of fell apart and, and areas opened up to the public, on Kamchatka, it wasn't just military. We we were able to get over there and take advantage and, and see rivers that just you know, except for the true natives, uh, just hadn't been seen before. And and so we got to name all these waters and uh, holes and stuff like that, and and really learn that you know the the west coast of Kamchatka and all it had to offer for steelhead and and all the salmon opportunities and. And, um, no, it was a lot of fun. And so, yeah, my, my love was fishing back then. Uh, I still loved hunting, but that was a short window of my life in the fall. Whereas fishing was, was a giant part of most of my year. And so, yeah, that landed me in some pretty cool places and, and it took me to some pretty cool areas, uh, in the Cascades and, and all over just, you know, high, high lake, you know, fishing and, and, um, you know what I ended up doing was was guiding and you know doing a lot with fly fishermen and um, you know those five months out of the summer were kind of wrapped up in in the guiding aspect and then I would come back and and get a little bit of uh um, i would I would teach guys how to fly cast and fly fish in these lakes that I would lease and so I'd bring all these folks out wanting to learn uh this was back you know gosh this was back in the 90s so i was you know fly fishing was just coming into its own as far as big numbers of people uh were taken to it so a lot of people wanted to learn and i like i said i was i was leasing lakes to where i could take guys out and just show them a good time you know teach them what they needed to know about casting and uh and then kind of show them all the all the different tips and tricks as far as catching trout and then eventually I could just let them go, and and I would be a photographer and take their photos. <laughs> but, no, it was, a, it was a ton of fun, and, and uh, when I did that, and then it was kind of, you know, hunting kind of engulfed my life at a certain point where, you know, my, my fall would go from the month of September, October, and then it would go into November, and it just has continued to grow and grow. And so my fishing time has taken a hit. Uh, now it's, it's really mostly in the summer and most of my time is, is, uh, is involved in trying to find out where another uh, cool adventure hunt will be or take place. But yeah, I, have kind of, as much as I, I grew up around fishing, I definitely have kind of stepped away from it a little bit and immersed myself more into hiking and hunting, um, compared to what I used to do for sure. interesting
2: um yeah so going going into russia right back in the day um and so you're saying you're just in helicopters flying around like spotting spotting things and landing them being able to land and and then just sit and fish um
1: yeah Yeah.
2: yeah what was that like was it so you were taking people from alaska and going over there is that how
1: it was or Oh, so what, what we did was uh, we kind of made an arrangement with, um, you know, a couple of gentlemen over there in Russia. Uh, and uh, one of the guys was on the east coast of the Kamchatka Peninsula. And uh, in the the main river uh, system that we were fishing was called the Japanova. And uh, there was a lodge on that river where we kind of based uh, base camped out of. And that was a – Mainly focused on rainbows, giant rainbows. I mean, true thirty-inch leopard-spotted rainbows, wild rainbows, and uh, it had everything else, you know, from all the, you know, different char and kunja and all the different species of salmon. But um, um, so, and and then we also made uh, arrangements from there to travel to the west coast. And uh, and just fish those steelhead that were kind of unknown over there, and and that was a ton of fun. That was more what we would do was we would fly around in a chopper, pick out a certain area where we felt like we could set up the wall tent, wall tents, and uh, we'd bring these little Zodiac rafts with little forty five horsepower pumps, and and we'd we'd plop down in areas that looked like they were very conducive to uh, swinging a fly with a spay rod. And then we'd go out and and we'd test the waters and and fish them and if they were good and we felt like we could bring some clients in there to to really get a good feel for it we would we would basically uh get those wall tents set up make that our base and and then we would fish that system and and then oftentimes we'd go fly around and find another river close by and, and fish that as well and uh part of the agreement for what we were doing We worked with the uh, Wild Salmon Center, which was a part of this program. So we were there to get information as well as take guys out and show them a great time, catch more steelhead than they'll ever catch anywhere else in the United States. Um, You know, just incredible numbers of fish over there. But we were taking scale samples. We were getting all the measurements. We were, you know, I would uh, would affix tags to to the fish um, and get all the samples and written information down, and we would submit that to the Wild Salmon Center so they could have information and uh, use that, and and in hopes of uh, you know really keeping that wild fishery like it like it was and uh, try to keep some of the commercial aspect out of it as far as commercial fishing. Um, we wanted to really show that there was value in bringing people over there, uh, to just catch and release, you know, those fish and and all that. Um, it was a big success. We, we had a great time doing it and there was a lot of information gathered in doing that. But yeah, some of the funnest, funnest times were, uh, me and, uh, two other guides, you know, sometimes we'd just, we'd fish our guys all day long. And then at the end of the day, we'd, we'd hike or hop in the boat and go fish. You know waters that that we had a question mark you know about and wanted to see it and and we'd go down and catch you know five six whatever steelhead in the evening and um just it's just an incredible fishery that they have and and it's still they still have over there it's still really really good but um no what a what a blast and the country you know the the Kamchatka Peninsula it's basically just rivers mountains and volcanoes. And, um, you know, I'd never been to a place like that, even in in Alaska, where, you know, the upper end of that illusion chain, it's just volcanoes, and they're live, and they're going off all day long. Um, In fact, one of the mountains that uh, you could pretty much count on it, between every 15 and 30 minutes, you know, uh, it would erupt, and at night, you'd see the red coming off the top. uh, Just an incredible place to uh, spend those those couple of years over there figuring out you know that that country but yeah ton of fun learned a lot
0: wow that sounds awesome um was there were there bears like the same way you see over in the bristol bay area following the salmon and there's you could be fishing and there could be 20 brown bears that are just passing by you and more worried about the fish (laughs) than the human
1: Yeah. So, uh, there was definitely bears. Now, you know, there weren't the the numbers of bears, like say you would see, you know, in Katmai national park, if you were, if you're up there on the Brooks river or something like that, there weren't those type numbers of bears, you know, you get on the Brooks and, and there's 40, 50 bears in that one stretch of river, um, in the park, not the case in Russia. They're very, very wild. Uh, the rivers aren't built. They weren't built like that. Um, Larger systems, Uh, but yeah, during the salmon run, they would kind of migrate to those smaller creeks and tribs and stuff like that. And, and um, you'd see bears, but uh, those bears got hunted over there pretty good. And so um, me being an American, I was not allowed to carry a shotgun or anything like that legally. They wouldn't let me um, like I could in Alaska where I'd always have you know, a sawed off around my back, um, for protection. But, uh, the only thing they gave me back over in Russia was, uh, well, they gave me a flare gun
0: (laughs) and that was my protection
1: and, uh, that was it. And they, you know, they'd kind of chuckle when they gave it to me and that's all you get. But, um, yeah, one of my, one of my favorite, uh, experiences was, you know, they would, they would fly me up river and drop me off the big old raft and I'd blow up the raft and, I'd either take them down the main stem or, or we'd float little back channels and stuff. And I'd fish these guys and, uh, you know, just kind of float them down, uh, the river and fish them and fish them. And, and eventually have a drop off or a pickup point. Um, sometimes we'd hike way out across tundra and, and, uh, into these little tributaries, just tiny little, you know, way back and forth type creeks. And, uh, yeah, catch rainbows from 20 to 30 plus inches, um, you know, and most of the time we were fishing on top, you know, we were fishing mouse patterns and um, probably the number one fly that we could ever use would be just a big old mouse pattern. Some of the easiest, most stupid fishing you'll ever see. Um, you could slap that rat or mouse on the water and and uh, dead drift that sucker and they would, they would just devour it. Uh, they just hadn't been fished before and they're just, vicious over there mm-hmm. but um yeah had a lot of fun doing that but yeah there's always that worry because the you know yeah you're in great country there's there's giant or you know, giant brown bears and um but you know they would allow for some hunting so that kept those bears honest and on, quite honestly where like if you're in Katmai national park you know those bears are just poking poking their nose out um and walking all around you, uh, they're not really scared of you. Uh, they're just always around you and they get comfortable with humans somewhat. Uh, not the case in Russia. Those, those guys would hunt them and they would they definitely keep their distance from you. So totally different.
2: Crazy. Is it, is it still like that? Can you still go over there and catch, catch a great big yeah. rainbows? Yeah
1: yeah absolutely in fact um one of the guides uh will blair he he continues to go over there and do it uh he kind of made a business out of it and would bring guys over and he learned more waters and more fisheries and um yeah he kept he kept rolling with that program and he's done he's done great and uh they've learned a heck of a lot more of the waters than than what we knew back when i was doing it uh but yeah they're still able to go over there and and uh, get get a you know a hold of an outfit and go either fly into areas and you know get get into your little base camp and uh, or hit a lodge or you know do float trips and stuff like that and, and catch catch fish and I know Will has I believe he has oh I don't know uh, like roughnecks or some you know smaller copplers or something like that and he's able to uh, run guys up and down the river over there and. And catch trout and steelhead in, in certain specific rivers so
0: i do yep. i do yeah. think I've, <laughs> I, I've fished alaska a couple times right and i love fishing alaska and i've talked to a couple guides that are like oh we'll catch a 100 rainbows a day you know um mm-hmm. when it's really hot but i'm just like fishing alaska has almost ruined me for fishing here you know it's kind of like <laughs> yeah you, know, you go up there and salmon and you know depending on what's running and you're like wow everything is like a five to seven or maybe if you're fishing kings you know even though you're they're very limited you might literally get a 30 pound salmon or 50 pound salmon on the end it's Mm -hmm. just it's kind of hard to you know go down and fish the little 12 inch stalker rainbows in the local (laughs) reservoir it's it's just like
1: yeah it wrecks you, right? And and that's the yeah. thing. And uh, You know, you get spoiled up there, and, and it does take away a little bit of your fishing back home here. Yet, uh, one of the things that I get out of back here are just those high-mountain lakes, right? I mean, you're catching, you know, 6 to 10-inch brook trout mm-hmm. or cuts and stuff. But you still get that adventure, the hike in, the, the scenery up there, um, small fish, not uh, nearly as, uh, as, you know, action-packed. Not nearly as large a fish as you get in Alaska or Russia or places like that but uh, it's just totally different and, um, I've just found that that's kind of my uh, the thing that I want to do now is just if I'm going to go fishing, I'm going to go hit a high lake somewhere that's kind of uh, secluded and void of folks and um, very eager small fish to, to catch
0: That's actually my preferred fishing though is just little high alpine lakes for cuts and rookies, yes. rookies so Yeah,
3: Yeah. this would be a a change of a change of gears. It's um, something that, Ryan, you alluded to earlier. You know, we were talking about the pandemic, the panic and bad stuff that's going on in in the country right now. And, um, you know, I think all of us kind of hope that people come out of this with some good. Um, you know, maybe a better sense of self-reliance or able to grow some of their own food, things like that. So I I thought it'd be an interesting discussion for everybody to just kind of say what they hope can come of this that might be a benefit for, for everyone, for the country.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I I think it's, yeah, it's nail on the head. It's definitely, I. I think it's inevitable that people are going to get some good out of this, um, you know, as bad as it is right now, I think I think with a major focus on health, immunity, um, you know, building your system up to where you can fight off certain things that will crop up on occasion, like, like this. Uh, I think there's no doubt that people are going to take their health a little more seriously. Maybe less fast food. Maybe more reliance on what you yourself can grow or hunt or put up yourself. You know exactly what it is, what's in it. It's real food, not processed boxed food. It's not laden with sugar. Um, there's just so many things that you can do, uh, you know, on your own to up your up your health and up your you know, your immunity. Immunity is huge and Hill and I talk about it all the time. You know, eating the right foods, eating anti-inflammatory things, cutting out sugars, those type of things are only gonna help when situations like this. I mean, who knows, who knows what the next pandemic or whatever, you know, bug that comes around is gonna do if it's gonna be more vicious than this one. Immunity and folks that are living as healthy as they can Getting their exercise, staying strong, um, able to, I say, grow your own or fend for yourself, be a little more self-reliant. I think, I think you're just having a, a good leg up, and you have an advantage there. So why not? Um, I think that it's, it's very important, and that's just one of the things that I hope comes from this: is people take more of a look at, you know, um, I'm sorry if there's any smokers, but. You know, I know one thing with this is folks that do smoke, it, this upper respiratory thing, it's pretty, pretty hard on you, you know. Um, there's just certain things that you should avoid doing for your overall health. And uh, hopefully hopefully this year, you know, that's one good thing that we get out of it is,
3: um, you know, a little more health conscious. You know, I think it's interesting that people are spending – a lot of people are spending vast amounts of time with their immediate family right now. And uh, I don't think that's happened in a long time. So I, I think there could be some bad that comes from that, but hopefully some good as well. Um, you know, maybe people will stop eating in separate rooms in front of the TV and gather around the table or, um, you know, check on your neighbors a little more. I've, I've got some elderly neighbors and I, I try to call them when I'm going to the grocery store. Um, I think that those are a couple of good things that could come out of this.
0: I agree. I think, um, I think there's a bit of a priority reset. I think, uh, I saw a photo the other day of LA that actually you had looked like you had reasonably clean air there. And it was like, (laughs) you know, it was kind of like, you know, the, there, there's a, they, I saw some statistic yesterday that pollution is down by a tremendous amount. Um, that, 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 stuff isn't bad you know if we can maintain some of that reduction of pollution and greenhouse gases and maybe when this uh, when this is over we don't immediately go back to well i want to drive my car 200 miles today and i'm going to pick up three items at the store that maybe we were a little more thoughtful in our approach and and we Take on things like homesteading or hunting. I mean, mo- as you alluded to early, Ryan, was, a lot of hunters their freezer looks pretty good. While people were running to the store, and I mean, I know I got you I got three lunch
3: meat. <laughs> yeah, uh,
0: yeah, I got three freezers here. You know, it's kind of like, eh, you know, as far as meat, um, we have elk, deer. Uh, you know, plenty of uh, plenty of fish. You know, yeah. well, it doesn't look bad. So, right.
1: Um, no, I, I think that, that's 100% correct. Yeah, I think people will hopefully uh, be a little more, you know, also conservative with the resources they're using as well, right? Um, I think I think with times like this, when you're not able to just go to the store every day, um, you just tend to look at things a little differently, um, use a little less if you don't need to, um, don't overindulge in your in your foods. And, uh, you know, I think with that mindset, it's, that's a good thing.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like one big thing that, um, for sure you're, you're seeing it already, right. With people crowding to parks and things is, is just that appreciation to be outside and just, just being able to go outside and spend time in the outdoors is, is already a big thing, right? Like they close Washington people are like, wait, what? Like, I can't go outside now. You know, um, there, yeah. there's, there's going to be yeah. a big appreciation for being able to just just go outside and spend time, uh, you know, not in your house.
0: Yeah, when I went back- yeah. when I went backpacking last week, there was so many people on the trail compared to normal. And I mean, it's a it's a popular area, especially in the spring. Uh, but there there looked to be a lot of people that really hadn't spent a lot of time hiking. That were out there doing it because it was an okay activity to do, and so is exposing them to some activities like that. I think is a good thing as well. So,
3: yeah, I think yeah. another another thing that could come of this is so many people are working from home for the first time. Um, it may fundamentally change the way business is conducted, where you know, we can do this more and more, and it's just a with internet connectivity, the way it is, if it continues to improve, it's so much more efficient, uh, for people to work at home. You don't have any commute time that is lost time from your life and you're not using fuel to, you know, travel to and from work, which is lost time and also pollution. And, um, so I don't know. I think, I think things are going to change, um, from this, but I, I don't know exactly how it'll be interesting
0: agreed yeah it's hard to,
1: it's hard to foresee like what's gonna what's gonna happen in the, in the future here but um, no I, I think you're right I think you know with this whole loss of uh, opportunities and, and freedoms that we've had here in the last few weeks just to, for, for a lot of people just to <clears throat> go go hang out or go do certain things or even just go you know out in nature. Uh, for certain in certain counties and states um you know i think there's going to be much more of an appreciation for being able to do that and uh and we won't be you know so neglectful as far as what we've we've got it pretty good here in this country or we have had it pretty good as far as freedoms and um you know when those start getting taken away it's a big slap in the face like wow it's this is uh this is not really the way way we want to live and uh, we've got it we've had it good for, uh, for a long time, but no, it's, I, 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 I don't know what the future is going to look like and how <clears throat> work environments are going to look, but no, I think you're right. I think you nailed it. I think there's going to be a lot more of a focus on working from home. Now, obviously, that's not possible with a lot of jobs and careers, but I think there's a lot of them that will definitely try to trend that way now, um, and they're kind of forcibly having to to try to keep some of these businesses going. I know my wife, you know, she's kind of in the medical field and it's very difficult for her obviously to see patients and they're trying this whole tele telemedicine type thing. And it just doesn't work um, very well without, you know, seeing your patient and really getting a good one-on-one connection with them. But I think there's a lot of, a lot of jobs out there in the tech field that definitely, uh, are gonna kind of transition to working from home more so than it even was, no doubt.
0: Yeah, I mean, mean, we've moved about 70% of our staff to home. Nathan's working from home, although he's been working from home forever since he's in Tennessee. Um, Dennis is now working from home. Um, Everyone at SO, other than just very few people to assemble and ship um, and dole out work are working from home at this moment. And for us, It's in a sense, it'd be good to kind of keep some of this because as you guys can attest, I mean, we were running out of space at our, at our, at our business. You know, it was, Mm. we were getting too many employees or I don't want to say too many, but our employees to how much room we actually had, um, was getting a little too, it was getting a little tight.
3: Bursting at the seams. (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah um so let's switch to some hunting stuff um sure um someone sent me a question they were curious if you still use kudo point broadheads i guess i think that was the kudo question point? yeah yeah
1: yeah i have um i've been running those kudo point broadheads for the last four years last four seasons um and uh you know, I, i've had nothing but good success with those 2 points they're a they're a two-blade uh you know single bevel broadhead and uh, i've gotten to know the gentleman down there andy and those guys that uh that run the company and both of these great great guys uh kind of engineers and yeah, and they created that that blade and i've been running it for four years and like i said i've never had one fail me I've been a great great head for uh, for me and i've not had one animal get away or any poor experiences with it whatsoever so yep no, i'm still running it i'm always i'm always fiddle farting around with different arrows and and uh you know i'll play with different blades on occasion but um, inevitably, yeah, I, I typically just stick with the Kudu points, and they've done really, really good.
0: Would you recommend them for a trad bow person or no?
1: Good question. I'm not a trad guy, um, so I am probably not the guy to ask that. But I don't see why you wouldn't want to use one with a, with a trad. I don't see I don't see an, a disadvantage unless there's something I'm missing, but. Um, far as uh you know and i'll get questions on kudos a lot you know it's just a single bevel and you know being a two blade i have a lot of people ask if if you're getting you know the cutting diameter if you're getting if you're getting good blood and uh honestly yes if you if you hit them right and put them where you're supposed to it doesn't matter you're going to get good blood uh you're going to have a good you know a good way to track and uh I think four years of running those things on uh, quite a few different animals—they've—they've they've stood the test of time and just, they just—they just that work. So.
0: That's awesome. Do you have a plant? You—you you said you really aren't into trad. Have you ever tried trad as far as hunting that way, or, or is no, it just like?
1: No. I, I grew up. My dad had an old bear, fifty-pound bear um, recurve that I started shooting in the beginning. And uh, obviously I couldn't pull it back very far in my early years, but um, he did some trad hunting with it. And then since then, you know, we've, we've got a couple of bows. Uh, my wife shoots, shoots one on occasion just out in the yard and we play around with it, but uh, I've got one, got a trad coming here any day, actually just to play around with who knows if I'll actually hunt with it. Um, I, I, uh, I know it's, look, no doubt about it, they're fun to shoot. It's addicting and um, and it's a blast shooting them, but we'll see if I end up actually hunting with the trad. I don't know. I've I, uh, I, uh, had no, I got no reason to quit shooting with the compound. I like that little bit of an extended range, I like the accuracy. Um, just the lethality of being able to pinpoint where you want that arrow to go and and not having uh, as, as many poor shots, I feel like. So we'll see where it goes. But, uh, yeah, I will be, you know, playing around with the trad quite a bit more this year than I have in the past.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, we shall see. Uh, so um... – on the hunting stuff, this is your second year with uh, doing the Western Hunting Summit. How, yeah. uh, it seems to be going really well. Um, anything you want to talk about regarding that? Yeah,
1: yeah absolutely. So um, last year we put on the first Western Hunting Summit, and it was more of a overall kind of you know backcountry hunting type theme to it. And we talked about mule deer, we talked about elk, backcountry, all that kind of stuff. Um, this year, what I ended up doing was kind of uh, separating them out. And so I've got four, four summits going this year. Uh, the first one coming up, May 28th, and uh, that is bear-specific. So it's the 28th through the 31st, and um, I've got a group of guys signed up. Um, I cannot wait to get these guys out on the mountain, uh, barring some unforeseen thing where the government just doesn't let us go hunting. <laughs> I don't know, but May 28th, I, I think we're I think we're good at that point. I hope, but uh, yeah, there'll be a dozen of us going up, and uh, we're spending three days on the mountain, and we're going to be in bear country. There's going to be uh, black bears, g bears, grizz um, bears, and uh, and we're going to take guys out who want to learn. A lot of guys are just really curious about where you find bears. And we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be really taking them to bear-rich country where we're able to see them, um, kind of show them the areas that we're looking for at that time of year. Uh, again, this is the end of May, so it is just prime season. Uh, those bears are just starting to think about doing, getting into the rut a little bit. They're moving. They're still feeding really well. And then, um, you know, like I said, there's going to be three days there that we're uh, we're going to spend on the mountain, the two overnighters. And then that very last day, on the fourth day, we're going to be going back um, and spending one day, half day in the classroom, just kind of going over everything that we've talked about on the mountain um, and answering any and all questions in kind of a roundtable type setting. And And if anybody wants to, you know, shoot their bows or have any – um, education on that or anything like that we're we're happy to help and and that that specific summit, ha- I'm gonna be there. Uh, my good buddy, Brian Barney will be there, and uh, a guy out of uh, Washington State, Douglas Bose, he's gonna be there. So there's gonna be three of us and um and our group of of folks, uh, I think about a dozen guys. And so you know, can't wait for that. We may have a few more people sign up for that. We'll see. Uh, I wanted to keep that one fairly small um, just because of the nature of those three days of uh, really putting miles on in the wilderness and being out there looking for, for critters. And kind of a small group is, is just more conducive to that, I feel like. And then after that, we've got uh, an elk summit and then another elk summit. Uh, those are both four-day events. And then at the end of June we've got a meal there summit and that's uh, June 25th through the 28th. And each of those summits has like a different array of presenters. Um, myself and Hill, Hillary, and my wife, uh, Brian Barney, Cody, Rich, those guys, we're all going to be at every single one. Um, but we've got uh, unique speakers coming to each event. Uh, for example, um, you know, Joel Turner, for those that aren't familiar with Joel, he runs Shot IQ. Joel is an incredible uh, archery educator as far as shooting, whether that's with a compound or a trad. He is just an incredible guy. He's he's so proficient and so well-spoken, and he can, just has the ability to teach you how to shoot better uh, with his controlled loop system that he that he talks about. You know, he teaches snipers how to shoot rifles better um he's just that good so he's going to be there at the first elk summit and he's going to have a day with us to just talk about that anybody that wants to learn um to shoot better under stress um just be a better overall um archer Joel's going to be there now we also have a lot of other guys there um you know mark livasay is going to be there as well and with the llamas uh we're going to be talking about scouting we're going to be talking about anything and everything elk hunting. Um, Like I said, Cody will be at all of those. Brian will be at all of those. Uh, I've got um, um, who else is coming? Uh, Dan Picard is going to be at that initial one as well. And those summits are going to be two days on the mountain and then two days in the classroom. Um, There's going to be a lot of shooting, our bows. We're also going to talk about shooting of rifles. Uh, I've got a guy coming in to talk about that. If that's what uh, the pass holders want to talk about, Uh, they can have a little breakout session with him and and talk about that. We're going to be talking about elk calling practice and individual elk calling. Um, And then the, the next summit, we've got a whole array of presenters as well. Randy Newberg is going to be there at that one. He's going to be coming in on the Saturday and talking and answering any and all questions. Um, each of these summits, there's going to be a workout involved, whether that's old Dan Staten from Elk Shape uh, giving a little workout on that Saturday, or the guys right here from Bozeman uh, Mountain Tough Fitness Labs, they're going to be there as well, um, presenting as well as putting together a, a short hour workout. And then kind of just to, to cap off the season of summits, uh, that last mule deer event, uh, again, it's going to be two days on the mountain in mule deer country. We're going to be talking about, you know, where we find them, approaches, bow hunting, rifle hunting, all of that. Uh, Remy Warren is going to be there at that event answering any and all questions. And then, um, you know, we're, we're going to be feeding everybody. It's just a kind of, you know we base this thing around educating people who want to learn about Western hunting. And at the same time, I want, I wanted it to be more of a, just a fun experience for anybody that shows up. Um, Hence why we have those two days on the mountain, a little bit of a workout. We're going to be doing some uh, archery shooting contests, trying to make it as fun as possible. Uh, You know, highlighting, you know, health, nutrition, foods. Uh, We're going to be feeding everybody, While they're there, whether that's on the hike or at the event in the classroom, um, just trying to make this a real fun experience. And, and at that time of year, what's nice as well is when people sign up for the event, they can come in, fly right into our, our airport here and, um, and our, our, our event is just a few miles away at Big Sky Archery. And so they're able to stay nice and close and, um, Bring the family. Uh, family is, is welcome. Saturday night, we're going to be feeding everybody a big barbecue um, and the families are welcome to come and enjoy. So, yeah, it, overall, guys, it, it's just really, it's, it's, it's specifically to teach folks about Western hunting if they're intimidated by it, um, learn about the gear that we use here and uh, and it's been a very good success as far as getting people um, excited about it and showing up. And gosh, I think I have we counted I have people coming in from twenty three different states this year uh, to these events. We were kind of looking at how people lined up and where they came from. Um, and that was our hope. You know, we've got guys everywhere from California all the way to New York um, coming in to uh, to learn and Just have a great experience uh, right here in in the Madison Range. So uh, very, very happy with how it's it's gone so far, and I want to keep growing this thing and and just making it better for people that show up and making it a a funner experience. And, um, yeah, just a great four days of uh, no better place to be than right here in around Bozeman, Montana
2: cool man do you uh do you have any spots are those all full those classes
1: yeah so what like for the elk summit we filled that up so fast we added another one so right now there are some spots open for the early elk which is june 4th through the 7th um so they can
2: yeah they can find that like just on what would they uh is it westernhuntingsummit.com? dot com? Yeah, go to the
1: website WesternHuntingSummit dot com. Um, you can go in there and and uh, grab a pass if you like. Or I think we've been shuffling some guys around. I I made it possible for guys say if they wanted to change their dates. I've had a few guys from the mule deer dump down to the early elk, and kind of a uh, kind of just trying to make it as as good for uh anybody as far as dates go. So there are a couple spots left. I think there's two spots left again for the meal deer summit at the end. And um and then, you know, if we get a few more people for for bear that's great. Uh but, you know, a small group is kind of nice for that trip. I think we're at a dozen right now. So uh yeah, there's definitely a few spots left and uh, you know, all the options are right there at the the westernhuntingsummit.com.
0: Hey, Ryan, forgot to tell you, there was a question I want to ask everyone. We have another podcast yeah. that we're doing this afternoon. Um, so with Kevin Koprick, he's a friend of mine, local guy. He's uh guided Denali like maybe 20 times, guided Vincent all over, and now he teaches rest, technical rescue. So he teaches a lot of SAR teams and, um, Stuff like this, and and I know our podcast is running kind of long, so I don't want to take up a, a whole lot more time. But I want to get this question. We didn't warn you about it. Um, it's some sort of backcountry blunder. Some something that went really sideways for you, uh, because we're going to be talking about you know, mishaps and mistakes and rescues on the next one. So I think, Mm -hmm. well, while you have an absolute ton of experience and everyone knows the badass trips you do and that you pull off for the most part, every, every one of us is screwed up one time or another, not taking something or something's went a little sideways. So. Sure.
1: Oh man. Um, yeah, we we definitely all fall in line with making lots of mistakes if they're right. Uh, you know, in saying that, I I gotta say, Kevin, I have been extremely fortunate as far as like an a dire emergency type situation. I have yet to have one um, beyond my very first deer experience, which I've, t- I've talked about several times, where I I uh, shot my first buck when I was. 14 or something and I got lost, but that was dire. That was, uh, that was very, very close to probably not making it out. Um, but gosh, you know, I have yet to have any kind of a significant injury, a cut or anything of that nature that I felt like I was in, in, in big trouble. Um, but as far as, you know, I'm pretty good about not forgetting any type of gear situation. Um, I've had I've had times, though, where uh, I've come back where maybe I should have pinned my tent down a little bit better because I've come back to my tent, um, basically picked up and uh, tossed into some trees and just shredded when I come back, which forces you to um, not have a shelter that night. But um, other than just those type of situations, I've been extremely fortunate to never have to um, – Push the SOS button on my in reach or anything like that. Um, you know, obviously, there's been mistakes as far as uh, navigating through backcountry, um, probably not the smartest moves where, you know, I've chosen areas that are probably not the safest routes, um, you know, all for the sake of saving some time and some effort. And I think. Even through all these trips, I continue to try to push that envelope, but I get a little smarter about it. Uh, once you have kids, you, you realize those those risks are not worth the reward. So, um, I uh, I don't really have any great stories as far as a, a big mishap where I was on the edge and not making it out.
0: Awesome. I remember that uh, story of you on your first deer hunt. That, uh brought me back to kind of some of, uh, Owen's early hunting adventures. Right. So, um, you know, and we've all had the tent that, uh, has, has picked up and moved itself before or broken for whatever reason. yeah, yeah, those are, uh, I mean, they, they aren't anything dire, but they are things that definitely change, um, what you were planning to do at that, that moment. So, yeah.
1: And, And I think, you know, for, for most of us, um, a big part of like physical conditioning, you know, there's a lot of people out there that still are under that impression that, oh, you know, you don't have to be a CrossFitter, you don't have to be a workout guy all the time to hunt. And no, you don't, you sure don't. But I feel like if you want to hunt in a certain way, if you want to hunt certain type country, if you want to go in so far, if you want to be able to pack animals out in from these places where they're unmolested and and undisturbed you have to like you have to be in the best shape possible and and uh you know i think if you if you every day do something physically kind of toughen yourself up and be prepared for big pack outs, emergency situations um you get to a point, Kevin, where you're like, you know what? If anything does happen back here, look, I'll, I'm just going to hike my way out. I mean, there's very, very, very few places, if any, in the United States where you can't just hike yourself out, you know, if if uh, if you have some type of emergency. Now, obviously, that's not the case if you're injured, but say your gear fails or something happens, um, you, you know, typically... You're not going to find many places. There's very, very, very few. Uh, maybe the Thoroughfare in Wyoming where you can actually get 20 miles from a road. But there's not that many places where you shouldn't just have the ability to hike yourself out. Um, mm. And uh, that's why we do some of these hard, you know, death march type things in the off season, um, to where you're just confident. You just you're 100% confident that. Uh, you know, unless barring some injury, you you can get out. You're not going to be trapped back there. You're not going to get stuck if weather comes in. Um, you just get yourself out. And uh, and one of the one of the things that we've done is, is added these death marches or death hikes in the off season. And, um, I wasn't able to go last year, but the year prior, uh, we covered 93 miles in in two and a half days, basically. And um, So, you know, you know, when you've done trips like that and you're able to go hike, you know, 30, 35 miles in a day, it hurts a little, but you know that you can do it. And once you've done it, you just get that confidence like, well, if something happens, um, I will get myself out of here no matter what.
0: Yeah, I think all of us have had kind of that, uh, you know. Like I remember Nathan's first hunt that he came out. Yeah. yeah, we used to have a couple kind of like emergency goos or whatever, in case mm-hmm. uh, you really have to put out some big effort days. So, yeah. Yep. So I think we're all pretty much in agreement with you on that. Anyway, I know this has went pretty long. Um, I didn't. I wasn't planning on taking up so much of your time, uh, but I want to thank you um very much for taking the time to share a little bit of what it's like being ryan lampers um with us um anyone have anything else to add
2: uh no just uh thanks ryan thanks for spending time with us today
0: yeah thanks appreciate it yeah.
1: no thanks for having me on guys uh, always fun talking with you guys and and uh yeah hopefully uh hopefully we all come out of this this crazy shelter in place, um, you know, with our sanity and uh, crazy times we're living in. But appreciate you guys uh, extending the uh, offer to, to be on your podcast.